0: All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner with you this week as we get ready to almost be done with Apology Article 5. We're almost done with Melanchthon's treatment on love and the fulfillment of the law. This week we're going to look at paragraphs 235 to 256, everything up to the conclusion of the article in the Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions. So here we are, paragraph 235 to 240. It's another one of those big, long paragraphs that then have a lot for us to look at. Here the adversaries reply that eternal life is called a reward and that therefore it is merited in a wholly deserving way by good works. We reply briefly and plainly. Paul calls eternal life a gift, Romans 6.23, because by the righteousness presented for Christ's sake, We are made at the same time sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. As John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3.36 Augustine says, as also do very many others who follow him, God crowns his gifts in us. Elsewhere it is written, your reward is great in heaven. Luke 6.23 If these passages seem to conflict for the adversaries, they themselves may explain them. But the adversaries are not fair judges. They leave out the word gift. They also leave out the primary teachings of the entire matter. Further, they select the word reward and twist its meaning not only against scripture, but also against the common use of language. In this way, they conclude that because our works are called a reward, there should be a price paid for eternal life. They assume they are worthy of grace and life eternal and do not stand in need of mercy or of Christ as mediator or of faith. This logic is altogether new. We hear the term reward and are supposed to conclude that there is no need of Christ as mediator or of faith having access to God through Christ's sake, not for the sake of our works. Who does not see that these are unrelated sentences wrongly joined together? We do not argue about the term reward. We argue whether good works are of themselves worthy of grace and of eternal life, or whether they please only on account of faith, which takes hold of Christ as mediator. Our adversaries not only attribute this to works, namely that they are worthy of grace and of eternal life, but they also state falsely that works have surplus merits. The adversaries maintain that these merits can be granted to other people to justify them, as when monks sell to others the merits of their orders. They heap up these freakish ideas in the manner of chrisisip, especially about the one word reward. It is called a reward, therefore works are the price paid for it. So works please by themselves, and not for the sake of Christ as mediator. And since one has more merits than another, some have surplus merits. Those who have earned them can sell them to others. Stop, reader. You don't have the whole chain of arguments. For certain sacraments of this purchase must be added. The hood is placed upon the dead. The blessings brought to us in Christ and the righteousness of faith have been hidden by such additions. All right, there's the opening paragraph of this section, the opening salvo in this fight as, is it a gift or reward? And Melanchthon says, we're not arguing about the term reward. We're arguing that you leave out gift. They say, the adversaries reply that eternal life is called a reward and that therefore it is merited in a wholly deserving way by good works. Right. Eternal life is the reward of having lived a good life. That is the Roman Catholic teaching, that you get to achieve heaven by having done good things. And therefore, in the Middle Ages, and in the time of the Reformation, and even now in some circles, that you still have the idea of surplus merits. That monks and nuns and the saints and this huge giant treasury of merits that the Pope has access to, that he can give to anyone he wants, and therefore there is the idea of indulgences, is that those are part of the merits, those come out of that treasury of merits that allow people to get out of purgatory faster, all because people did more good works than they needed to, to get into heaven. And the question is, of course, how many good works is that? Because I haven't figured it out yet. I have nowhere in the Bible that says that if you do this many good works, you are guaranteed of heaven. No, it says it is a gift from Jesus through his death and resurrection. And so when they leave out gift, they also take reward and then twist it all around inside out, upside down, everything else to even use it against what we even use the word reward for in normal language. And so, with this idea of eternal life being a reward, is that then we don't need Jesus. Is that this is something that we can achieve, that we can be worthy of. And Lincoln has to say, stop, reader. You don't have the whole chain of arguments for our other things that have to be done in order for all of this to be solidified. Much like the hood of a monk being placed upon the dead person who then gets their merits from that monk. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel the need to have a monk's hood put over my head when I'm in the casket. In fact, I'm just fine with a cardboard box. Just dig a hole, drop me in there, cover me back up. But then again, that goes into funerals, and that is a totally different topic, but we have this idea that there are other things that they have to do, that they keep adding things that need to be done in order for the merit to actually be transferred from one person to another. So he goes on into paragraphs 241 to 248. Yet again, another long section here on the main idea. that, once again, we are not trying to start A needless word battle about the term reward that's the opening line of this section is that Melanchthon is not just trying to pick a fight because they use this word wrongly he's simply pointing it out so that we can move on and we can explain our understanding of it in relation to the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century so 241 to 248 We are not trying to start a needless word battle about the term reward, but this is a great, exalted, and very important matter about where Christian hearts can find true and certain comfort. It is about whether our works can give consciences rest and peace, whether we are to believe that our works are worthy of eternal life, or whether it is given to us for Christ's sake. These are the real questions regarding these matters. If consciences are not rightly taught about these, they have no certain comfort. However, we have stated clearly enough that good works do not fulfill the law, that we need God's mercy, that through faith we are accepted by God, that good works, be they ever so precious, even if they are the works of St. Paul himself, cannot bring rest to the conscience. It makes sense that we are to believe that we receive eternal life through Christ by faith, not because of our works or of the law. But what do we say of the reward that Scripture mentions? If the adversaries will admit that we are regarded righteous through faith because of Christ, and that good works please God because of faith, we will not afterward argue much about the term reward. We confess that eternal life is a reward. It is something due because of the promise, not because of our merits. For the justification has been promised, which we have previously shown to be properly God's gift." To this gift, the promise of eternal life has been added, according to Romans 8.30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here belongs what Paul says. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. 2 Timothy 4.8 The justified are due the crown because of the promise. Saints should know this promise, not that they may labor for their own profit, for they ought to labor for God's glory. But saints should know it so that they might not despair in troubles. They should know God's will. He desires to aid, to deliver, and to protect them. Although the perfect hear the mention of penalties and rewards in one way, the weak hear it in another way. The weak labor for the sake of their own advantage. Yet the preaching of rewards and punishments is necessary. God's wrath is set forth in the preaching of punishments. This applies to the preaching of repentance. Grace is set forth in the preaching of rewards. Just as Scripture and the mention of good works often embraces faith, for it wishes righteousness of the heart to be included with the fruit, so sometimes it offers grace together with other rewards. We find this in Isaiah 58, 8-14, and frequently in other places in the Prophets. We also affirm what we have often said, that although justification and eternal life go along with faith, nevertheless, good works merit other bodily and spiritual rewards and degrees of reward. According to 1 Corinthians 3.8, each will receive his wages according to his labor. The righteousness of the gospel, which has to do with the promise of grace, freely receives justification in new life. But the fulfilling of the law, which follows faith, has to do with the law. In it, a reward is offered and is due, not freely, but according to our works. Those who earn this are justified before they do the law. As Paul says, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, and we are fellow heirs with Christ, Colossians 1.13 and Romans 8.17. But whenever merit is mentioned, the adversaries immediately transfer the matter from other rewards to justification. Yet the gospel freely offers justification because of Christ's merits and not of our own. His merits are delivered to us through faith. Works and troubles do not merit justification, but other payments, as the reward is offered for the works in these passages. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, 2 Corinthians nine six. Here clearly the measure of the reward is connected with the measure of the work. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land, Exodus 20.12. Also here the law offers a reward to a certain work. The fulfilling of the law earns a reward, for a reward properly relates to the law. Yet we should be mindful of the gospel, which freely offers justification for Christ's sake. We neither obey the law, nor can obey it, before we have been reconciled to God, justified, and reborn. Nor would fulfilling the law please God, unless we were accepted because of faith. People are accepted because of faith. For this very reason, the initial fulfilling of the law pleases and has a reward in this life and in the next. Regarding the term reward, many other remarks derived from the nature of the law might be made here. Since they are too long, they must be explained in another connection. They have the idea right in a sense that reward comes from the law. But the problem is justification comes from the gospel, the one that they don't get. So we go back to paragraph 243 for a moment. The first sentence there, saints should know this promise, not that they may labor for their own profit, for they ought to labor for God's glory. Saints should know the promise of salvation. That should be the most basic thing that anybody gets out of church, is that they are saved by grace, through faith, on account of Christ. That should be the most basic thing you get out of church. And this is not something that you do for yourself. This is something you do for God's glory. We don't assemble ourselves because God has said, okay, you need to attend X number of services throughout your life. Because A, nobody knows how many days you have. Therefore, how do you know you'll get all the services in? B, why would God put a stipulation like that on your salvation when he has said it is all done through Christ? This is the problem in the Reformation. This is the problem of the Roman Catholic Church even today is that justification cannot be by faith for them because they have built up an entire system over centuries that cannot be toppled. It was centuries in the making when Luther tried to do his reforms, but he could not topple it. We cannot topple it either. The only one who is able to topple it is Jesus Christ himself, and he will do that on the last day. Now, is that saying that all Catholics will go to hell? No, absolutely not. I believe there are plenty of true Christians who do firmly believe, whether maybe only on their deathbed or by exposure to Lutherans and other Protestants and evangelicals that have promised the salvation by faith as given in the gospel, that they believe that. Because not everyone believes what their priest says anyway, right? I mean, I get that from my own congregation is that there are disagreements as to my interpretation versus others. And to a degree, we have that right of difference in interpretation because there are things that are acceptable to be up for interpretation. Justification is not one of those things. So, in paragraph 249, he goes into other arguments of the adversaries in just kind of rapid-fire succession going through some of the other things that come up. So paragraph 249. The adversaries insist that good works have the right to merit eternal life because Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works, Romans 2.6. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, Romans 2.10. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, John 5.29. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Matthew twenty-five thirty-five. He continues on. In these and all similar passages in which works are praised in the Scriptures, it is necessary to understand not only outward works, but also the faith of the heart. Scripture does not speak of hypocrisy, but of the righteousness of the heart with its fruit. Furthermore, whenever the law and works are mentioned, we must know that Christ cannot be excluded as mediator. He is the end of the law, and he himself says apart from me you can do nothing, John fifteen five. We have said above that all passages about works can be judged according to this rule. When eternal life is granted to works, it is granted to those who have been justified. Only justified people who are led by the Spirit of Christ can do good works. Without faith and Christ as mediator, good works do not please, according to Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please God. When Paul says he will render to each one according to his works, not only the outward work ought to be understood, but all righteousness or unrighteousness. So glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, namely to the righteous. You gave me food, Matthew twenty-five thirty-five, is cited as the fruit and witness of the righteousness of the heart and of faith, and therefore eternal life is given to righteousness. In this way, Scripture, at the same time with the fruit, embraces the righteousness of the heart. Scripture often names the fruit so that the inexperienced understand better. It also names them to show that a new life and rebirth are required and not hypocrisy. But rebirth happens through faith and repentance. Let's go back for a minute. Melanchthon has a great line right here in paragraph 251. Only justified people who are led by the Spirit of Christ can do good works. Who is it that can do good works? Only those who are justified by Christ. Without faith and Christ as mediator, good works do not please, because without faith it is impossible to please God. The Roman theologians are sliding right past it, do not want to have to deal with that, so they just keep going on and hammering about works and works and works and works, even using Jesus' words of promises of eternal life, and therefore saying, yep, even Jesus agrees with us, when Jesus is saying the exact opposite. All right, paragraphs 254 to 256, finishing up this section this week. No sane person can judge otherwise. Neither do we needlessly attempt to make a fine distinction, trying to separate the fruit from the righteousness of the heart. If only the adversaries would have conceded that the fruit pleases because of faith and because of Christ as mediator, and that by themselves they are not worthy of grace and of eternal life. We condemn this failure in the doctrine of the adversaries. In some passages of Scripture, understood either in a philosophical or Jewish manner, they abolish the righteousness of faith and exclude Christ as mediator. From these passages, they conclude that works merit grace, sometimes in a merely agreeable way and at other times in a wholly deserving way, namely when love is added. They maintain that works justify, and because they are righteousness, they are worthy of eternal life. This error clearly abolishes the righteousness of faith, which believes that we have access to God for Christ's sake, not for the sake of our own works. It also contradicts the truth that through Christ, as priest and mediator, we are led to the Father and have a reconciled Father, as has been said well enough before. This teaching about the righteousness of faith is not to be neglected in Christ's church, because without it, we cannot consider Christ's office then the doctrine of justification that is left is only a doctrine of the law. We should keep the gospel and the doctrine about the promise granted for Christ's sake. All right, there's the end of our reading for this week, and we go back to these last couple of lines again. The teaching about the righteousness of faith is not to be neglected in Christ's church. What was the biggest complaint about the Roman Catholic service's by the Reformers. There's no mention of faith. There is no mention of Christ. And when they do sermons, and truly in the Middle Ages, the 15th and 16th century, there were only sermons during the penitential seasons. And they were exhortations to pilgrimages, to almsgiving, to all kinds of works that we have to do to make ourselves right with God, to bring ourselves up to being good enough for God. Never once is righteousness of Christ being told that it is given to us. Never once are we called to believe in Christ as our Savior. Never once were we called to understand that all of this Justification, eternal life, comes through faith. No. It was told that it all comes through love and the works that we do. And as long as we have love, we can do good works. And this brings up the point that he makes over and over again in this section, these last couple of paragraphs, about there not being room for hypocrites. You cannot do good works if you are detesting your neighbor who is made in the image of God. You cannot do it. The Bible tells you you can't do it, and your own experience tells you that you can't do it. But people try to make it out that way. Why? Because they want to have the works themselves be the ticket, not themselves. They don't want their person and their personality and their interest and in their likes and their dislikes being part of the equation. But that's exactly what happens when you try to bring works into it by themselves. It's that you have to have something to go along with the works. So then your intention, your love, your habit of mercy, or whatever else they want to put in there in the place of Jesus is the wrong substitution. There is no substitute for the righteousness of faith that comes through Christ. And that is what Melanchthon has spent 256 paragraphs in this article, another 120-something in the previous article, all about the fact that this all comes about because of faith in Christ as mediator, that he is the mediator of the covenant, and he is the atoning sacrifice that covers all our sins. And that is our message in the confessional corner, that it is only through Christ that we have salvation, justification, and eternal life. And it is on that basis, that strength, that we draw our strength to be able to wrestle with the theologies around us. This is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you that strength in your reconciled Father through Jesus Christ, not through your works, but that He is reconciled and that He is one that you can call your Father in prayer and that He gives you the strength to wrestle with the theologies that are around inside and outside the church. So I encourage you to continue listening to the Confessional Corner, digging deeper to the moments of meditation. We've got the end of the Matthew series coming up in the next few weeks. And then we start the Genesis series, which was started a couple of months ago on the radio here in Illinois. So I encourage you to be here for that as they go quasi live, as I put them on at the end of the month uh, from the month that they are being put on the radio. So uh, there's that, but also for the fun of it, There's Pro Wrestling America, Fantasy Wrestling League, for you to be able to enjoy with me my ideas of what could be if you had these guys in a wrestling federation with each other. But that's enough for now. This is Pastor Doug Minton once again, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.